Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, and this week we are talking about, uh, again, Webblegem, which was yesterday, E3, uh, Saxobank Classic, which was on Friday. Uh, we'll touch a little bit on Volta Catalunya, and we have an interview with Kristen Faulkner, who is, uh, I would say, the best American cyclist racing in Europe at the moment. Uh, kind of flying under the radar just because she's only been a pro cyclist for six months. So uh, pretty pretty interesting story there. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can uh, subscribe to the Beyond the Peloton newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly edition, which if you enjoy the podcast is a no-brainer. Definitely sign up for that. And there's a trice weekly uh, paid edition, and it is it's actually daily during Grand Tours. That is 90 days of daily analysis that you can sign up for. And if you do that, you it's also included with some discounts to brands like Stages Cycling, uh, Cure of Switzerland. You get 12 months of free premium Str- uh, Strava membership. So head over to beyondthepeloton.substack.com if you want to do that. So first, let's talk about uh, just ETH, just go in a chronological order so I don't get confused. But E3 was on Friday. We kind of all the races start coming thick and fast now. Or the Northern Copper Classics since we have Tour of Flanders on Sunday. Uh, normally, it would culminate at Pere Roubaix the following Sunday. Uh, unclear if that's going to happen. So we're just going to go forward. Uh, assuming Flanders is the end of the Cobble Classics, and then we'll get into the Ardennes Classics after that, which are far inferior, if you ask me, but still pretty exciting. It seems crazy from the outside that you would race E3 on Friday, get mobile again on Sunday. Like, how could you possibly be recovered? But it's actually good to get these incredibly difficult uh, training loads via racing this close to Flanders, since Flanders and Roubaix are both I mean, close to seven-hour races at almost all out the whole time. So you really have to get a lot of racing in if you want to prepare for that. At E3 is kind of more, I would say, more of a more of a one-for-one comparison to Flanders. It's shorter. It's a lot shorter. It's 200 kilometers instead of like 260. Uh, get Wolvigan's longer. It's like 230 kilometers, which I believe makes it one of the longest races that's not a monument. I think so. Don't quote me on that, though. But E3 has uh, climbs closer to the finish. It does a lot of the same climbs as Flanders, uh, kind of a similar finish to Flanders. So it's it's actually, it's the smaller race, but I think it's the more important predictor. And we saw Dekuna Quickstep absolutely screw, squeeze the crap out of Vanderpool and Woot Van Aert. I mean, it was like picture-perfect tactics where they had a rider up that they sent Casper Askren off the front with 66k to go by himself. He sits out there for I believe 60 out of the last 66k, wins the race. Super impressive. Um and he won it after he got caught. Just kind of mind-blowingly hard. I don't even really know that how that's possible. You really really rarely see that. But once he was off the front, it put the onus on Woot Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool, who were both clearly very strong, to chase. They kept kind of ripping small groups away. But the key is that Deconic Quickstep had riders in all of those chase groups. So while Askren's off the front, Vanderpool and Van Aert are chasing. And like Yves, like Yves Lampard, uh, Florian Seneschal, like world-class riders are just kind of sitting in the wheels, not doing anything. And that's, that's a huge advantage. Kind of the most interesting part of the... So at 31K to go, Woot Van Aert, who looked pretty strong, him and Vanderpool are doing a lot of the work. I mean, they're basically pulling... 
they're keeping Askren in check by by themselves. They they keep him around like 20 seconds, but I mean, at the bottom of the Old Quermont, which is the penultimate climb of Flanders, he was only 15 seconds out in front, and it's a tough climb. I mean, you could close 15 seconds on a struggling rider quite easily, but by the top, I mean, he think it's only down to 12 seconds, and then in like the 5K before the next climb, he's pulled out five more seconds, so it's 20 seconds. And if these gaps seem small, if you watch Grand Tour racing, you're like, oh, well, that's really easy to close down. He hasn't stayed a chance. 20 seconds with 30K to go, no one can stay away. It's really different in the spring classics. I mean, a 20-second gap can just not be closed. So that just it's, it's harder for groups. You don't have the big inertia of like rolling along a flat French highway. So these small roads, the races are so difficult. Everyone's kind of traveling at terminal velocity. So a 20-second gap to a single rider can't hold. So with 31K to go, Woot misses a bottle. Uh, it had like a gel tape to it. And I think that was the last section you could feed. So right there, I was thinking like, oh, that's not good. That's probably going to come to play later. With 19K to go, he launches a major attack before the final climb. It's like their final chance to dump everyone, mainly the, the Dakota Quickstep riders. And if they can get away, just the two of them, they can close the gap to Askren and then kind of slug it out for the win. But so whoop, attacks at the bottom of the climb, gets dropped. Like, Vanderpool counters a few moments later and Woot just gets dropped. So like that's really strange because why would you attack if you knew you were about to be dropped? You could just preserve your energy and sit on and hope to make it over. So that kind of tells me that it was probably instead of him being out of shape, I think that was just like a hunger issue where he was falling apart, but he didn't quite know it yet. Vanderpool has a really, really strong effort up up the climb. He can't get rid of Zendek Stebar who is like, he, you could see how much pain he was in just by looking at him. He is gritting his teeth, doing everything he can to stay with Vanderpool. Stays with him, which is key because that means Vanderpool then has like a big anchor on him. If he works to pull back Askren, Steve Barb will just sit on and then attack him once they catch him. So it puts him in a really tough spot. It's huge that Steve Barb held on. Someone pointed out in the subscribers only Discord that I was contradicting myself saying if Vanderpool would have dropped him, he probably would have caught Askren and won. Because then I said, because Vanderpool didn't drop him, it probably means he's not in top form. I still think both things can be true. I think Vanderpool is, is good enough that if he does get, even if he's not in top shape and his form is fading, if he drops Stebar there, I think he could, I, I think he could have pressed on. If he just had the green light, knowing that he had some, some gap, I think he could have won the race solo in his diminished, quote unquote, diminished condition. Uh, but once it's like they, they catch, once it's like this, it's kind of inevitable. There's a group of them just a few seconds behind Askren. They catch Askren. But and it, what, I was so impressed here because they catch him with about 12K to go. With 6K to go, he attacks on the other side of a traffic island and gets away. And no one can catch him. Vanderpool's on the front. Vanderpool's looking around for help. I mean, no one's going to help him. Like, no, no one in their right mind would help him. Help him. You'd have to be an insane person. I actually, I right here, I mean, right here, it's an impressive, it's the race winning move. It's super impressive. I, it tells me Vanderpool might not be right. Because if you cast your mind back to like Kern Brussels Kern or even at Torino Adriatico, he's closing that down. No questions asked. And he probably passes Askren and wins the race solo. So I suspect we're not seeing peak Vanderpool here. Uh, my, my guess is that he's kind of, you know, think he's been... He raced a really competitive cross season. He won cyclocross worlds and then jumped right into road. Um, whereas like Van Art went away and did a training camp to kind of like reset his body. 
you know, I, the, just the laws of like fitness dictate that you probably can't hold that form forever. So this is possibly him coming down on that. You know, this is just a theory of mine. Could I could be I could be wrong, and he, he might win Flanders easily. But definitely something to watch. Just note that uh, Askren stays away for the win. Kind of interestingly, Florian Seneschal beats Vanderpool in the sprint, which shows that even if Askren wouldn't have attacked, they uh, Dakota Quickstep was confident they could beat Vanderpool in a sprint since Seneschal and Stebar had been sitting on for like since Askren attack, so like 66k to go, which is a huge advantage. I mean, this is like picture-perfect picture tactics. Uh, if they ride like this, they can win any race. The only thing where this falls apart is if the race is so hard that they get isolated. They can't do this. They can't isolate riders. And this is exactly what happened at E3 on, or sorry, at Gent Wovelgen on Sunday. Uh, the race, it actually wasn't on live TV yet, but it blows up like... Uh, I don't know, 30k in or something. You just see these crazy. It must have been crazy crosswinds because we saw like echelons forming really early. Uh, an elite front group gets away with a bunch of good sprinters like uh, Nizzolo, Sam Bennett, uh, Woot Van Aert is in there. But the key, the short, the the cliff notes of this whole thing. If you want to read more about it, uh, a newsletter just went out this morning that you can dive into. It's got some pictures. It kind of breaks the race down in detail. But the cliff notes are uh, Van Aert has a teammate. And this is key because every everyone else by the time the, uh, him and his teammate break, his name is Nathan Van Hudenok, Hudenok, something like that. They break it. They kind of shed a bunch of riders the second time up the Kimmelberg with 54k to go. I mean, they they race this thing to perfection. They just put a little bit of pressure on the group. It breaks it up. So then it's just, it's them two and then isolated fast, but isolated riders. And they kind of know they have the race under control at this point. They don't have a huge gap. I mean, by the time they do the last climb, the Kemmelberg again with 36k to go, the gap's down to 48 seconds. So they possibly could have got caught, but they, they really don't panic. And Nathan, Nathan ramps it up uh, at the bottom of the Kemmelberg. Woot kind of takes over. Jacks the pace up a little bit more, puts a little bit more pressure. They almost drop Sam Bennett, who I would assume is the only rider Woot Van Aert is afraid of in this group, because he's the only sprinter that's consistently faster than Woot in the world. They almost drop him. They don't. It kind of gets hairy here because he drops his teammate, but drops no one else. So it's like, well, what what did that pace increase accomplish? It does increase the gap. It's 48 seconds at the bottom of the climb, and this is where the peloton has to pull him back, but it goes out to a minute by the top of the climb. So it shows that they they ride the climb much faster than the chase group. They've won the race at this point. Uh, luckily, Van Hudwick can catch on on the descent and like the, the flat right afterwards. So this is like this is where they win the race right here. He catches on. It's two of them against one of everybody else. Bennett then falls off the back to puke. So we know he's screwed. I mean, he's in, he's in big trouble. It's impressive he hung on, but a pure sprinter like that, it's really hard to hang on here. Oddly, this used to be like a sprinter's classic, but they added a few more climbs. They made it a little bit harder. And it is certainly, first, if it was a big, big group who could control the pace and kind of, you know, you could sit in, they could pull a gap back easier. You know, ben, it would be a lot easier for Bennett, but Bennett going like pedal stroke for pedal stroke against just like classic destroyers like this is not really going to work out. Uh, and where you see where it's key that Woot has a teammate is with 16K to go, then Hudwick attacks, puts the race in the gutter, which means 
when they say in the gutter, it means there's a crosswind and you're you're ov- all the way over on the side of the road where no one can get your draft. So it's really every man for himself at that point. And it's a great way to thin a, thin a uh, group out because, you know, if you're riding really hard at the front, the guy at the back, he gets no draft. So he has to ride just as hard to stay in the group. And this pops. You can see Bennett in one of the screenshots I have. Last wheel, you know, 30 seconds later, he's popped. We all know this. If you've ever raced a bike or done a group ride, you know this feeling. Like someone pins it in the crosswind. You're hanging on for dear life at the back. It's only a matter of time before you get dropped. So he gets spit out the back here, and Woot has the race won. It's pretty much wrapped up because he is a teammate who can control any attacks, keep the race together for him lead him out. And I was just so impressed how confident Woot is in his sprint here. Cause you know, Vanderpool probably attacks on the Kimmelberg and tries to win this race solo. It may or may not work out, but Woot just, uh, we talk about this with Kristen later in the interview, kind of like does a, a scenario analysis, you know, calculates the best chance of success and then really sticks to that plan and executes. So I was really impressed. Stefan Kuhn tries to attack with 1.7 K to go. Uh, Van Hudik, Woot's teammate, shuts it down quite easily, and it's it's game over from there. I mean, once if if Stefan Kung can't get away, it's over. And sure enough, Kung attacks again with like 400 meters to go, but Woot just comes around him and and roasts these guys in the sprint. And these are good sprinters. I mean, Nitsolo's European road champ. He won that in the sprint. He's in second place. Matteo Trentin's in, in third. Sonny Cabrelli in fourth. Three Italians right there in a row. That's kind of interesting. And Northern Classics. That's unusual. Uh, Michael Matthews in fifth. I mean, those are all really good sprinters. And Van Aert never panicked, never really doubted himself, and just, and just roasted him. So super impressive. Shows, obviously, that he's on form, but I was more impressed with just his confidence and patience. And that could really help him next week. Kind of the biggest story today, besides the win, is Trexigafredo and Bora couldn't start the race because of COVID positives. I mean, that kind of dampens the win a little bit because, like, Mads Pedersen's the defending champ. He, he couldn't start the race. Jasper Stoyven, who won Milano Sanremo, he can't start the race. So, you know, it's definitely not an A grade field. Uh, so, you kind of have to put a little bit of an asterisk here. But Woot Benar is looking very good for Flanders. I mean, very good. I, I feel very confident about his chances. Uh, Vander, Vanderpool, I assume he skipped just because he wanted a break because that is a lot of racing he's been doing. Uh, it's kind of significant though, because only one rider since they moved again, Wevelgum to its current slot, it used to be in between Flanders and Roubaix since they moved it to the week before Flanders, only one rider has won Flanders after skipping Gent Wevelgum. That's Philippe Gilbert, but he did a three day stage race in between. Uh, that stage race is now one day. So it's not really the same race anymore. I, it's my personal theory that you need as much like consistent six hour, just like really pinning it efforts before the week leading into Flanders to prepare for it. I think that's why all these riders who win Flanders have done both E3 and Gantt Wevelgum. Uh, it's concerning that he, if you're banking on Vanderpool, uh, winning the second consecutive Flanders, this is a con- this is concerning. You know, and I, I want to know why he missed the race. Add that to that he didn't look. I didn't think he looked himself at E3. And even if we go back to Milano San Remo, he he didn't look himself either. I mean, he dropped Alaphilippe so easily on that final climb at Strada Bianchi that you know, and that he should be like he probably in his at his fittest can drop everyone on the Poggio and solo to win at Milano San Remo. 
can probably drop everyone on the final climb at E3. It's a little concerning that he can't, he's not getting away clean. That would tell me something's, uh, like he's probably fading from his uh, like supernova cross form. Uh, Volta a Catalonia was on, also ran at the same time. Too much racing going on. It's too hard to keep up with. Uh, the cliff notes are from here is Adam Yates, my God, looked amazing. It's like an Adam Yates we'd never seen before. Uh, and Ineos, his Ineos teammates, he gets first. He's on Ineos. His teammates get second and third. I think it's the first time one team has swept a world tour uh, stage race podium ever. So that's pretty significant. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing for the other riders there. I mean, because it's like, well, it's Ineos. Of course they dominated. But if you think about it, like, well, Adam Yates, is it? I mean, this is his biggest stage race win of his career. It's the only world tour stage race he's ever won in Europe. Garrett Thomas hasn't won a race, period, since 2019 when he won the Tour. And Richie Porte hasn't won a European stage race since 2018. So it's not like these are like locks to win. And there was good riders there, like Hugh Carthy, Sepp Kuss. Everyone's always saying, oh, Sepp Kuss should be, a, he should be the race leader. He should be the team leader. But, you know, Sepp couldn't really compete at this thing. So, and this was his chance to lead. So that's not a great audition for him. Joao Almeida, I mean, he's young. He's a little touch and go at times. I would have expected him to be a little bit stronger. Simon Yates, usually better than Adam Yates, just gets blown out of the water. Naira Quintana, I wouldn't bet too much on Naira these days. He looks dis- disappointing. Enric Mas, Rigoberto Oran, and Hugh-, Hugh Carthy, I mean. Hugh Carthy, people were saying, this guy's the next great British rider after the Vuelta, and he just gets roasted by Adam Yates. I'd say the most interesting thing about Catalonia is, well, Peter Sagan won the final or no, second to last day in a sprint, looked very strong. I thought it was odd he came to Catalonia instead of doing E3 and Gent-Wevelgem because this is like a very unusual prep for Flanders. It ended up helping him because he couldn't have raced E3 or Gent-Wevelgem anyway because his team was pulled from those races. So he actually looks very fit. I'd have him as an outside shot at Flanders. He looks really good. He looks kind of back to vintage Sagan, if I dare say. But this, uh, I'd say the other takeaway here is Ineos is now has like a big wrench thrown into their Grand Tour, their Tour de France plan specifically, because they released a long list of 12 riders they were going to take to the Tour. They have to pick eight of them eventually. Adam Yates wasn't even on the list. They said he wasn't going. They said Garrett Thomas was going to lead with Teo Gegenhart and Richard Carapaz. Carapaz looked, well, looked pretty bad, actually. He did some good teamwork, but before he slotted into that teamwork role, he was not good. I mean, he got dropped straight up dropped by the peloton on a climb. Garrett Thomas was, was crap in the TT. He hasn't looked, his TT has been off all year. I would not expect that to come back at his age. I think he's 35 or 36. It's not, you know, the glory days aren't coming back. And if the time trial looks to be slipping, that's going to be a consistent issue. I mean, Adam Yates actually was the best time trialist, the best GC time trialist on the team. Rowan Dennis won. Uh, there's been a lot of debate in the, in the subscribers-only Discord about the best leadership strategy. A lot of people say Dennis and Ghana should be their leaders. I mean, I kind of agree. I've, I've hinted at this, maybe said it explicitly in some newsletters. If you're just looking at, like, looking at this on paper, Ghana is your future for the GC. He can time trial and climb. So you really should build around him if you're thinking long-term. On paper, Dennis could win a Tour de France. He's a great time trialist. Set the record up to Stelvio climbing so he can climb. I don't think he has the mental composition. It takes a special person to win a three-week stage race. I don't think he. I don't think he has it. So, 
Uh, and I think it's too early for Ghana. I don't think you can trust for a team of that budget. If this was like a small team, yeah, risk it. What do you have to lose? Throw Ghana in there as a leader. For a team of this caliber, you have to, at some point you have to like uh, make a decision based on like past facts. And I, I don't think they don't feel confident enough in Ghana to back them for three weeks when they have these other. Let's say let's call them options. I don't think I think it's kind of a false. It's a false. Uh, embarrassment of riches because they have a lot of very good riders i don't think they have a lot of riders who can challenge and beat the best grand tour riders in the world which means they're always going to be fighting for like you know for second third fourth fifth place and ghana's not on their their long list either i think they just don't want them taking the yellow jersey on the stage i believe it's a stage four time trial it could be stage five but this uh but yates emergence is a time trial uh and climbing threat he didn't have a good time trial at the uae tour but his climbing was amazing. He was the only rider who could stay with Tade Bogachar, who's probably the best GC rider in the world, hands down. I don't think anyone would, would argue that. So if you want to challenge Pogachar and Roglic, you need someone who can climb with them, not losing time on those climbs, and time trial really well, because Tade Pogachar, also one of the best time trials in the world. Primoz Roglic, podium finisher at World Time Trial Champs. So yeah, you need someone who can time trial. Adam Yates has lacked that until now. He looked, he looks great. He looked great in the time trial. Catalonia, I'd be interested to see him try to replicate that. But that's something for Ineos to note. I mean, I think they're going to have to go back and kind of, they should never have released that long list because now it looks like they're changing course midstream. They just should have played it close to the chest and then said, we're going to see what happens. Because they're going to have to revoke leadership from Garrett Thomas. If they want to win the tour, they're going to have to re- revoke leadership from one, two, or three of Carapaz, Thomas, and Teo Gegenhardt. And that's not going to be a good look. And it's not going to go over well with those riders either. So currently, I'd say Adam Yates is their best shot. He should be their leader. I mean, he's proving it on the road that he's their strongest rider. So it'd be silly not to, not to reconsider and take him to the tour. Do I think he's going to win the Tour de France? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying he's their best chance. I mean, he looks significantly better than last year. People are going to say because he's doping. I don't know. His times, Enios hasn't looked that good this year, period. So I wouldn't really say they like have access to doping that other teams don't. I mean, and Adam Yates' his climbing times aren't that crazy. I mean, he finished a few seconds in front of Esteban Chavez on the, the main summit finish at Catalonia. So... It's not exactly like suspicious stuff, but he, he, looks, he looks much better than he used to. I think he should be the NES leader at the Tour de France. So we're going to get into our interview with Kristen Faulkner now. She is a super unique story. I actually didn't know enough about Kristen before the last few days, but she is, I, I would argue, I say this in the interview, I think she's the best American cyclist in Europe right now, racing in Europe right now. And actually, if you dig into the results, it's really not even close. I mean, Matteo Jorgensen and Quinn Simmons maybe would, would uh, challenge her. But this year, at least, her only results where she finished outside the top 20 were due to incidents out of her control. How well she's doing with lack of experience is, is really, it's unlike anything I've ever seen, really. She's only been racing professionally for six months, but she, she was uh, like a big-time venture capitalist before this. S- super interesting path from working in like high stakes finance in New York and then Silicon Valley at a big Sand Hill Road VC firm and then transitioning into professional cycling, which is a really unique and strange and unusual, but very cool career trajectory. So uh, exciting that we got her on to talk about that. 
She finished in seventh at Gentwevelgem yesterday in the women's field. It was a bunch finish that Mariana Voss absolutely destroyed. But to be up there with such little experience, I mean, some of these races you're doing in the U.S., I mean, as a man or a woman, local races don't have very many people at the elite level. So she's going from like 15-person fields to rubbing shoulders with the best sprinters in the world and getting seventh. I mean, it's super impressive over cobbled roads where you, it's really, you have to know a lot. You have to know how the races unfold and she's doing it all blind. So really great to have her on the podcast. And uh, Kristen, we're excited to have you on. Thanks for coming on. It's really great to be on the podcast um, and great to meet you. Yeah, great, great to meet you as well. Congrats on the, uh, on the result yesterday at Gent Wevelgen. Yeah, it was a tough race between the crosswinds. I got dropped a few times and had to get back on the peloton. And then we had the Kemmelberg and then a lot of attacks in the final 20K. So it was a tough race, but a really good one. Hard one. It's got to be so different than racing in California. Just because that's where you started. That's where you've been racing before in Europe, right? Yes, I started, I started racing in New York, actually, in 2017. And then I moved to California in 2018. And the field sizes in California were anywhere from 10 to 15 women usually. So I actually skipped the pro circuit in America because of COVID. So my first year on TIBCO, I went straight to Europe. And so I went from racing California races with 15 girls to the pro European Peloton as my first experience with a real <laughs> group of people. So um, it was a bit of a leapfrog and a really fast learning curve, but uh, I guess it just means I'm learning more every race. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super impressive. I'm going to start this with a hot take. I've been digging into your results. I think you're the best American cyclist racing in Europe right now. You don't have oh. to, you don't have to comment on this, I guess, cause it, you, I don't want you to, I don't have to make to. any enemies, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all these people I'm still trying to learn from, <laughs> but I appreciate that. But these results are, are super impressive. I mean, actually I was surprised I went back to 2020 and you won not your very first race, but your you won a stage of your first stage race in Europe. Which yes, is cra crazy. Yeah, that was at Ardash. Um, it was my first ever pro race, and they threw me right into a stage race. And um, I had gone in an early break, and the peloton was starting to catch up. And my coach basically said, "If you can go, go." So I went, and then just stayed away, and I just went as hard as I could. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just raced hard. And then I ended up with a stage win. So that was really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> it was a great way to uh, build my confidence because I came over to Europe and I wasn't sure if I was ready since I'd never done a pro race before. And so, yeah. Yeah. And we were talking about this right before we were recording, but you kind of had a great, because of COVID. Um, I mean, I guess just because you came into the sport, like you ascended so quickly and COVID you really jumped into European racing really fast. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about just, I, I'm very curious. You also have a very interesting like career, career background. I mean, you, in professional cycling, it's not totally normal to have. I mean, you were like a, a high-powered venture capitalist like on, in Sand Hill Road firms. I mean, these are not like rinky-dink boulder venture capital firms. So <laughs> I'd, lo I'd love to know more about how you went from um, I mean, you went to Harvard and then I saw you worked at Bridgewater, which is like a notoriously difficult place to get a job, to A, get a job and B, work. And then how that, and that's in Connecticut, I assume you were living in the New York area at the time. 
yep. how you went from that to then just a few years later racing. I mean, you're, you finished just a place behind Mariana Voss a few days ago, who's probably the best cyclist of all time. I mean, you could argue she's the best cyclist of all time. So I, I'd yep. love to just hear a little bit about that journey. It's, it's very unique and very interesting. Yeah, it was a fast paced one for sure. Uh, so I graduated from Harvard in 2016 with a degree in computer science. And I had actually, I did an internship at Bridgewater in Connecticut uh, that summer before my senior year. And I never knew if I wanted to work in finance, but I was really drawn to their culture of radical transparency. Uh, I just felt like it helps a lot with self-reflection and knowing your strengths and weaknesses. And so that really helped me as a person, but also in my athletic career, just being able to see my strengths and weaknesses very objectively and not take feedback personally. So I think the Bridgewater experience has, I mean, it definitely changed how I approach learning and being self-reflective about everything. And then after graduation, I moved to New York City to work at Bessemer Venture Partners, which is a venture capital firm. And I had been a varsity rower in college on the lightweight rowing team and the heavyweight rowing team, actually, I did both. Um, <laughs> and when I moved to New York, I really missed being part of a team. And I missed the athletic pursuits because I'd done competitive sports my entire life. I was a swimmer when I was younger. And then in high school, I did swimming, cross-country running, and rowing. And then in college, I was a rower. So when I moved to New York City, I was working in a finance job. And it was very competitive. And I just really missed being part of that team culture. And I was on the elliptical one day in the gym and I was like, this is just not for me. I can't do this. I'm not an elliptical gym goer. Um, and so my friend recommended that I try out this woman's cycling uh, clinic in New York. And so they host these free clinics for novice women in Central Park. And I showed up in running shorts and sneakers and a hand-me-down bike for a man that was 6'3 and um, ended up doing the woman's clinic. And then during the clinic, they were like, okay, just go sprint. And I was like, okay. So I sprinted. And then one of the women came up and she was like, Hey, you should join our team, you know, come try out. And so I showed up to first team practice. I think I tried to clip into pedals once before and I showed up and I said, hi everyone. Nice to meet you. And then I just fell over. <laughs> and, um, so it was definitely, you know, from the very beginning, start in New York city. And that team was the David Jordan team and they did races pretty much every week in the summer. And so they were all in Central Park and that really got me learning how to race. And um, there were a lot of bunch sprint finishes and the team was just really helpful in teaching me how to ride. And then I moved to New California for a new job in 2018. So about a year and a half later and joined a local amateur team and did a lot of racing in Northern California and was able to get up to Cascade there and then do Chico stage race. and. It was actually a friend of one of the group rides that I go on who introduced me to Linda Jackson, who's the owner of Team Pipco Silicon Valley Bank. And she is the one who you know, reached out to me and um, said, we'd love to have you join our team. So then I joined the team in 2020, which was the start of COVID. Um, and um, basically did a lot of Zwift racing my first year and then came to Europe in that, that fall of 2020 right after COVID had kind of settled down in Europe. And that's when I started my European racing. So that was my journey as a cyclist, but I can talk about kind of my career and balancing that as well, if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Very interested in that. This is also, I, I had Keegan Swerble on like a few months ago and he kind of 
he had a crazy story where he got the KOM and like this famous KOM in Boulder and then Rally hired him like a week later. And I was like joking, like you've ruined like every team manager's email for like the next year because everyone's going to be emailing their KOMs. It's like you're the same way where it's like everyone's going to go to like Chico Stage Race or Cascade and, and then have a good result and be like, can I be on your team? The difference between you and Keegan and the rest of everyone else, though, is you guys are like extremely talented. I mean, that's that's a really fast rise. It's like shockingly fast. Yeah, and- my coach actually um, earlier this year, she was like, you, you know, you've set this people are going to start expecting that I'll take them right to Europe, but I want the athletes to go through the American pro circuit. And I don't want to send the signal that you can just jump from, you know, 15 woman races right into the European Peloton <laughs> because that's not what I want to do. And that's not the standard I want to set. So um, it was really kind of interesting and funny because at the time I had no option and neither did she. Um, but yeah, it was a unique situation. And then I think Ardash, she was like, you're not normal. We can work more. We can work with this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I, my like personal pet theory is racing in the U S can, can actually hurt you. You can develop a lot of bad habits, especially if you're really strong and you can just go wherever you want the bunch where a lot of people who race on the U S circuit for too long, you, you develop so many bad habits that you get over to Europe and you can't quite adapt to the different style of racing, which I'd love for you to talk about, but so it's almost like that helped you, the COVID break. And I assume you were just doing all Zwift races last year. Well, let's, so you were with, you were full, working full time in 2000, 2020. Is that, is that correct? Yes. So I graduated and started work in the fall of 2017. Sorry, fall of 2016. I started working full time. And then I left my job January 31st of 2021. So just over um, about two months ago at this point. So when I was working full-time, I was waking up at 5.30 to do my two-hour rides or three-hour rides and then go to work at nine. And I'd come home just exhausted. I had no time for recovery. I was, you know, drinking protein shakes and meetings, but hidden inside a water bottle so no one knew. And then, you know, on Zoom calls, I would be, have like a heating pad on my legs to help me recover, you know, something. So I was always, you know, trying to fit in my workouts where I could. Um, There was actually one time where I had, a Zwift ride in the middle of the day and a Zoom call right afterwards with a CEO. And I jumped on the call and I was really sweaty and I hadn't changed. And I was like, look, I'm trying my best to fit everything in. I prepared for this meeting. I read all the materials in advance. I don't look the part, but I'm here. So let's just go forward. <laughs> and and um ended up, you know, drinking my protein shake during the meeting. So I I definitely was squeezing things a lot. And um it got to the point where I felt like I could be either a great venture capitalist or a great cyclist, but I just couldn't do both at the same time. And it wasn't fair to my team or to my colleagues for me to try and kind of fall between two stools, as they say. So I decided to take the jump and, and do it. So I haven't looked back since. And when you, when you were approached by TIPCO in 2020, is that correct? That's yes. When you joined. So I joined in 2020. Yeah. Were you thinking in the back of your mind, like, I, you know, I, I could possibly leave my, my day job for this once you committed to joining TIPCO or were you still kind of on the fence? I always thought that I'd be able to manage both. I don't think I fully comprehended how hard it was to do the full European circuit with a full-time job. I think the nice thing about COVID is that it let us work remotely. And so I was able to work longer than I would have otherwise. But um, I tried, so I was working 
halftime when I came to Europe in the fall for my first European block. And it was really hard because I was on Pacific time zone for work. So I would work from five until 10 p.m. European time, get up the next morning and race our dash and then come back and then have a board meeting that I had to get on. And then I'd be eating a baguette and a you know block of cheese for dinner. And then, you know, I wouldn't be getting my recovery be eating full meals. I wouldn't be going to bed on time. And then I'd wake up at 6 a.m. the next morning to go raise the stage at our dash. And so it was really unsustainable. And when I came back to the U.S., I was really burnt out. And that's when I realized I had to make a choice. So I think in the beginning, I thought, you know, I'm, I can make it work. I've done a varsity sport in school my whole life and, you know, been able to balance two. And I think it, it was really challenging. And it just continued to get more challenging. And eventually it hit a point where I knew that if I ever wanted to be great at something, I had to pick one. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually insane. You're like describing that, like it's a slightly normal thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee like Mariana Voss is not like doing venture capitalist meetings after race. I mean, I'm looking at your (laughs) results sheet from 2020, like you got 31st at Tour of Flanders while working a very demanding full-time job. I mean, this isn't like, you know, you hear about like Colin Strickland or something who was like working as a, like an environmental engineer and then racing U.S. crits on the side. And people are like, oh, wow, that's difficult. But those, are, those jobs can be a lot more accommodating than, I mean, you were like yeah. in the upper echelon elite of like the American, you know, white collar society. <laughs> and that like where people probably are not like, oh, yeah, take some time to train if that means working a little bit less. So that's super impressive you did that. I think, actually, it's interesting. Being around really type A people, I think they, I mean, yes, the work was very demanding, but I think the personality types I was around were also incredibly high-powered type A personalities that also try to do it all. So you have working moms, you know, with families at home and to work, two parent working households, working in finance. And so to me, um, I had kind of role models and people I was surrounded by who were all working super hard. And the second thing was that it kind of crept up on me. You know, I started racing just on the weekends in Central Park in New York. And so I would wake up at 5 a.m. for practice on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And then next thing I was going to bed at nine on Friday nights to wake up at five on Saturdays for races. And then the next thing I was traveling all weekend for the races. And then I was waking up at 5 a.m. to practice every single day. And so it kind of was a slow progression. And I think that made it harder for me to leave my job because every single step that I took was incremental. And so I thought, oh, it's just a little bit more than before. It's just a little bit more than before. I can handle it. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think it had been one monumental shift, then it would have been, I would have probably had to make the decision earlier. But the decision, and when I became a pro, that's also right when COVID hit and we could work remotely. And so that actually made it, you know, made the decision process last longer (laughs) than it otherwise would have, I think. And so you, and so do you go to Europe for, um, I assume you don't live there full time. You still live in the Bay Area? Yeah, I live in San Francisco. Um, We come to Europe for race blocks that are about two months at a time. So I might get a visa. I have to look into that. It's going to be hard during COVID, but I'm going to try and get a visa to stay here during the summer. But typically we come for two months at a time, maybe two or three times during the year. 
and then so was la- last year 2020 was the first racing block you did over there yes yeah. yes and i was here from september 1st until end of october maybe and i i assume i mean it's it's like hard to overstate how probably wildly different that was than northern california weekend racing i because you were saying like fields of 15 riders i mean that's actually that's probably pretty good for a for a weekend race in the u.s for a women's elite field and then i mean some of these i'm assuming like i'm just gonna look at i assume some of these races have they're over 100 riders probably almost all of them so how was that oh yeah go ahead i was gonna say yeah our last race i think had 170 people at the start line so totally different um and yeah i mean i definitely picked up some bad habits you know in the u.s i think if you break away early and you're fit it's it's harder to get caught than it is in europe or you know if you break away early you're you know you shouldn't break away unless it's towards the end of the race yeah if you're solo you know um and then i think the biggest jump for me was positioning i didn't you know in a small field sizes in the u.s you never have to think about positioning in the peloton and here that can make or break your race because you know every hill climb every corner every cobbled section you might get dropped if you're not in the right position and especially going into the final sprint and with field sizes so large you know i say that um that i often say cycling is like poker where your fitness is just the cards you're dealt with and the number of chips you start with and um you know it's it's all, it's how, all about how you use them and so in a race in america i felt like fitness was 90 percent of it and i feel like in europe fitness is maybe 50 percent of it and fitness is mandatory to kind of be in the game but then after that it's all about how you conserve energy and position in the peloton because you can be much less fit than someone and beat them over and over again if you're good at positioning so that was the hardest thing for me to adopt to and then i think the second thing was just how much team strategy is involved at this level and so learning the tactics and learning how to work with my teammates and leverage my teammates and let myself be leveraged by my teammates um was all new to me so just learning that it's not just about how hard can you go for you know 60 miles it's actually just much more mentally taxing than that and correct me if i'm wrong so do you think you're doing better in like the real real world racing this year than you were in the Zwift racing last summer? Than the Zwift racing last summer? Yeah, that like do you think your results are kind of uh are cuz I just noticed you you tend to be beating you're beating a lot of people who were I I believe beating you in the in the virtual racing, which is interesting to me because then you wonder cuz that virtual racing is just pure, you know, watts per kilo. There's really not a lot of positioning or I guess there's some tactics, but it's um, like Remco Evanepoel's like this too, where he doesn't, you know, he's actually kind of a poor virtual racer and then he gets out on the road and he's like maybe the best, when he's healthy, the best rider, male rider in the world. So do you think that like you just have like an innate ability to position and read a race in person that other people don't? No, I mean, it's definitely, I have a long way to go for sure. (laughs) Um, I think think there's two things. Um, The first is that I think in Zwift, were able to there was still team strategy involved but positioning wasn't a factor and so you could still send someone up the road in a breakaway on zwift and then everyone else could sit in and not work and so because i was new i was often you know 
working or chasing breakaways or being, um, you know, more of a helper to my teammates on Zwift. So that could be part of it. Um, whereas after my stage win in our dash and then some of my results last fall, I think now I've had the opportunity to kind of show what I can do in in-person races. So that's part of it. And then I think the second part is, um, maybe I feel like I have something to prove now that I'm in Europe because, you know, like I think as my, my first year when I came over here, which was last fall, I really doubted whether I belonged here or not because I totally skipped the American pro circuit. I had no idea what I was doing. I crashed like a few times in the, during the stage of our, during the stages of our dash. And I think I was telling myself, you know, my team only brought me over here because they didn't have another rider to bring over during COVID. Um, so no one had ever seen me race in person before. And so I think I really worked hard to make sure that I like, earned my right to be here. And uh, yeah, every single race I'm learning to do new things. You know, when I showed up this year, I didn't know the names of more than maybe three people in the Peloton. You know, just like <laughs> I knew, I knew like the three most famous women and I didn't know anyone else. And I would try to pronounce these names and my teammates would just laugh at me and they would be like, how did you do decently well in races and not know your competition? Like you should know the names of every single rider in the Peloton who's placed in the top 50 in every single race, you know, the last few years. So I started making flashcards and learning the racers and what their strengths and weaknesses were. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually embarrassing to admit this, but when I placed fourth at Udigan, I didn't know anyone in that group other than Marion that I was racing against. I didn't know if they were sprinters or hill climbers. I didn't know the national champions. I didn't know any of them. And so it came under the sprint and I think I would have executed very different tactics if I'd known. And so those are just things that it's really embarrassing to admit, but there's so much that I'm that I'm still learning as I go. And so everything from studying the courses to learning tactics to moving through the Peloton to knowing my competition to knowing whether, you know, I should, what I should do if it's a bunch sprint versus a not bunch sprint. If I have two teammates with me versus a teammate with me, you know, all these things I'm still learning. And how should I play the finish depending on who's left in the race, you know, those are all things that I didn't have to think about in America at all. So that's hilarious. There's obviously like knowledge is power, but there is that there is like something to be said for just showing up because you can kind of work yourself into knots. If you're, if you get too focused on the competition or there's probably something that like, you probably had a mental clarity where it's like, I was a freaking Harvard varsity rower. Like who, who are these people? Like they, they, they didn't row at Harvard. I'm better than, you know, it's like, you're obviously not saying that, but just like, you're just showing up, you're there. And then, I mean, I've seen, you said you didn't know anyone in that big group. You beat like Amy Peters in a sprint. Who's like a super famous, uh, very good sprinter. Uh, and then you were just beaten by Jalene Dior, who's a very good sprinter on SD works. So there is ob obviously like you want to know as much as possible, but I, I would argue that there is a power to just kind of like be you know having confidence in yourself and showing up and not getting too focused on the competition where it can kind of give you a lightness that other people don't have yeah i mean it definitely didn't come from a point of <laughs> ego or confidence thinking that i could just show i mean it was definitely ignorance is bliss in some ways like i didn't psych myself out 
but I would say the ignorance was just, I was so new and I had so much to absorb and learn. And I'd only quit my job maybe two or three weeks before I came to Europe. And so when I was working full time, I barely had enough time to train. I had no time to recover and stretch and do yoga and all these things, let alone watch races. And so when I came to Europe, basically, yeah, two weeks after I left my job, that was the time I had to watch races, read up on the competition, all of these things that I'd never done before and never had time before to do. And so the ignorance <laughs> just came out of necessity, um, I guess, coming up to that point. But it also meant that I didn't psych myself out sometimes because I didn't know who I was up against. And so that was against some of the best riders in the Peloton in a sprint. And I didn't know it. I was just going to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, you know, I never thought to myself, um, oh, I can't beat her. I just, but I also never thought, oh, I can beat them. It just, I just didn't know. And so I was like, I can just do my best. That's all I can do. And that was my mentality. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty embarrassing to, you know, every race I look back and I think about all the things I didn't know that I should have known. And it's on one hand, incredibly embarrassing and humbling. Um, and on the other hand, I'm like, well, I did decently well not knowing those things. So once I know those things, I'll do even better. And that's really motivating for me to, you know, spend even more time learning these things. So that's so interesting. So when when you like do the Kimmelberg, like that's the first time you've seen the Kimmelberg. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fast. <laughs> yeah. During the race, <laughs> we didn't re we didn't actually recon the course um, because it was um, not close to where we were staying, and we have a lot of races back to back. So the first time. In fact, for most of these climbs, the first time I've seen them is during race. So that's true for most of the races I've ever done. And our dash, I'd never seen the course before. And then for a lot of the classics, I'd never seen the course before. I think the only one was maybe Flanders because we were staying in Odenard. So that's, yeah, you're blowing up. My theory is that like knowledge <laughs> is like key to doing well in the classics and you're just like destroying this theory race by race. It's so do you guys stay in, you stay in just like hotels or do you, they like rent you apartments um, in Flanders? We have an Airbnb that we're staying at as a team. So okay. we have a kitchen and I think last year we had a similar setup in Odenarde. And then in our dash, we stayed at kind of a campground Airbnb style place. And then for smaller races that are just one day, we'll usually stay at a hotel. So. So you, you kind of have a base and you can go out and ride like, because that's the, the Tour of Flanders finishes at Odenard, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, it starts yeah. and ends in Odenard. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you can go see the, the finale of the race and stuff. Yes. And it's really nice to be able to live near by a lot of those climbs. Although sometimes in order to do a recon, I have to do like a five hour ride to do part of the course just to get back <laughs> to Ninove, which is where we're staying. Um, or Ninove, I, I never pronounce it right. So apologies to anyone here who's from Belgium and knows that I'm butchering the pronunciation of these sounds. Um, but yeah, it, you know, every, every ride I can chip away at a few more of these climbs and a few more climbs. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we can only do so many recons when we have rest days and easy days and we're racing back to back. But right now my goal is to just race as much as possible. Cause I think every time I race, I come out with, 
10 new lessons of things I did wrong that I can learn from. So, you know, I might skip out on some of the recounts, but I get the race experience. So it's a trade-off for sure. And do you consider yourself, uh, I'm just looking at the results from yesterday's Ghent Wevelgem. I mean, you came to the line with 34 other riders and did, did pretty well, got seventh in the sprint. Do you consider yourself like a, do you like races to come down to a sprint or do you, you, would you rather win? So do you think you like have a time trialist ability to kind of go solo if the opportunity comes up? Up until Udigan, I would have said, don't ever put me in a bunch sprint because <laughs> I'm an endurance athlete. Like I was a rower, a swim, long distance swimmer, a long distance runner. And so time trialing was always what I thought it did best. And then in the US, I would just win races by going out in a solo break. So when I came to Europe, I was actually really overwhelmed whenever there would be lead outs going to the sprint because it felt like a stampede, you know, that scene from Lion King where like all of the yes, yeah. <laughs> animals are running and he's like, you know, getting completely like tossed around. Um, so that's how I felt when the bunch sprints came. It was just really scary for me um, as a new writer with everyone going so fast around me. And then I also, on top of that, physiologically had never been a sprinter. I'd always been a long distance endurance athlete. So at our dash, I went in a solo break. And then in the other races, I was always, you know, that I did well, I was always able to stay, you know, with the front group, but I never like won a bunch sprint. So this year has been really interesting for me because maybe that will change my mindset about how I think about racing. Um, but that's, I think, what the practice is good for. It's just, I'm still at the phase where I'm learning what kind of racer I am because it's changing the more races I do. So I, I don't know. Like I used to think of myself as a climber, but now I might be more of a sprinter. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these races are so hard. I mean, and they're pretty long. I mean, approaching four hours. That, another crackpot theory of mine that like a real, like what you think, like Kendall Ryan, I think was on Tipco last year. Yep. Like, a, like a real American criterium sprinter it's actually i think i think it's a quite a different skill set at the end of these long classics where like an endurance someone with like slow twitch muscle can actually sprint pretty successfully where it's like i think fabian cancellara went to our flanders in 2013 from like a fairly large group and you would you know he was probably not someone you would think of as a sprinter mm -hmm. so you can you know even as an endurance athlete do pretty well in some of these sprints yeah and, I think especially in the Flanders classics in particular, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times people quantify how good a sprinter is based on the waters they can produce on fresh legs, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, what's your best 30 seconds? And in a race, it's a totally different. It's what's the wattage that you can produce after four hours of being in, you know, zone three or zone two, you know, you know, hard efforts, red zone throughout the race. And I think that for me, you know, I, <laughs> I might not be able to put out really high wattage at, on fresh legs, but I can probably put out the exact same wattage at the end of four hours of racing. <laughs> and so for me, <laughs> you know, it's not that I'm a sprinter per se. I think it's just that I maybe recover better during races or fatigue less during races than someone who's a pure crit racer or a track athlete who can do really well on fresh legs, but maybe not after they've climbed the Kemmelberg and Canaryberg and, you know, the big local climbs as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so do you, uh, 
I assume you guys, ha- you have like an, in- an intra-team strategy. You don't have to talk about for next week at Tour of Flanders. But is that a big, a big goal for you personally? Tour of Flanders? Yeah. I think for me, um, yeah, I mean, it'll be an exciting race. I love the Flanders classics in general, all of them. And I think, you know, Tour de Flanders is pinnacle. I was most excited about Perry roubaix but unfortunately that's been canceled now. Um, and that was the first, I believe the first ever edition of Perry roubaix for women. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I was most excited for that race more than any this season. So I think, you know, shifting gears, thinking about what next race I'm most excited about, I would say Flanders. And, um, you know, part of it is that it's another really tough technical course and that there's hill climbs, there's, you know, it's long, there's a lot of critical sections. It could come down to a sprint, it could come down to a solo finish, it could come down to a breakaway, you you know, there's lots of different ways it could turn out. Um, And last year, I actually got a mechanical at the base of one of the big climbs. So I was in the front group, and then I got pulled back to the second group after that. And so I think coming in as one of my first ever pro races and sticking with a front group towards one of the final climbs, you know, was really exciting for me. And I think that gives me a lot of confidence going into this year with more experience and hopefully not any issues uh, during the race that I could stay with a friend group. And I have a lot more confidence now in a sprint if it comes down to that. But I also think, you know, if there's a break, there's a chance I could be in that too. So I don't know, but we have also teammates that are much better sprinters than I am. We have teammates that are better hill climbers than I am. So I don't consider myself um, like the best in any one area. I think I'm just somewhere in between for all of them. So depending on how the race goes, you know, it might suit some of our teammates better than others. And I think that's, what's nice about having a team where we have a variety of riders when there's a race that can go in either direction is just we have to be pretty dynamic about our strategy going in i haven't mentioned this yet but a lot of these races like aren't on what you would call like strictly roads by american standards like is <laughs> it, do you find it difficult to race on the cobblestones or have you just kind of like jumped in without really an issue i think what i struggled with was positioning going into the cobbles was the hardest part for me because things break up on the cobbles and split up in the peloton and there's always lead outs going into the cobbled sections. And so when I was new last year, and even to a certain extent this year, the position I'm in in the Peloton going into the cobbles is actually much harder than the cobbles themselves. And yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a strength rider. So um, I think the cobbles came more naturally to me than they might someone who's a lot more petite and small because I could power through them. Um, but the hardest part was being a new rider in a really big Peloton, trying to find my place towards the front leading into some of these critical sections. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. You kind of don't appreciate that if you haven't done races like that, but you'll, you can turn it on at like a hundred K to go. And sometimes it looks like a bunch sprint going into some of these cobble sections, which Mm must've been really, really kind of emotionally and physically overwhelming if you've never ever had a race like that. Yeah. In fact, one of my most proud moments in my cycling career was actually last year I did a lead out for two of my teammates at the Tour de Flanders going into Odenard. And I had been so scared about the Peloton during lead outs because everything just happened so fast and I would always get shot out the back. And so I had this assignment that was like, I need you to lead out two of your teammates going to this climb in Flanders. 
And in my head, I was like, oh no, oh no, how am I going to do this? Like, I've never been able to stay towards the front during a lead out, you know, during any kind of critical section. How am I going to give my, get myself to the front, let alone give a lead out. And I was able to get to the front and give my two teammates a really good lead out and probably the best position going into that corner, into the hill. It was like a 90 degree corner into a hill. And I walked away and I felt so proud. And that was one of my proudest moments because I was so bad at positioning before that. But as soon as I knew I had a task to do for my teammates, it just made it, I was so much more determined to get it right and to do it. And I just had to be fearless. And I was like, I can't screw this up. I can't be scared. I need to just go do it. And so I some, you know, somehow found my way to the front of the Peloton and I just, I, I couldn't let myself get scared and I did it. And yeah, I think there's a lot of times where it, I feel a lot more pressure when I'm working for my teammates than I do if I'm doing something for myself because it's other people's results on the line and my teammates. And I think this was a moment where I was just thrown into the deep end and I was like sink or swim. And I was like, I have to swim because these are my teammates on the line. So yeah, that was a really memorable moment for me because I had never been able to stay towards the front before that. And then suddenly I had to do it for my teammates. And I would, so it was kind of a double whammy and I pulled it off. And ever since then, I've had a lot more confidence about being towards the front positioning and in the peloton. That makes a lot of sense that you would be, it kind of like sharpens your, uh, your mind when it's work for somebody else. But that's, uh, you're kind of underrated. That's like really, really very fast to pick it up. Years like I was quote unquote bad at positioning for two weeks, and then now I'm very good. <laughs> I, I've solved that problem. <laughs> I think one time someone asked, one of my teammates asked RDS, you know, like how did Krista learn that so fast? And my DS was like, I think she's just more fearless than you. <laughs> or, I think she just has less fear. Um, and she meant it in both, you know, a positive and negative way. Which is in racing, you know, you need to. You can't win a race if you're not willing to take risks. Um, but at the same time, you have to learn which risks are safe and which risks are worth taking. And as a new rider, you don't always know the risk reward ratio. And then even if you do, you know, how you calibrate the risk, you know, right, riding close to the edge, you know, how, how risky is that? Or, you know, positioning, you know, riding to the middle of the peloton when you're butting shoulders of their teammates or other riders, how dangerous is that? And I think when you're new, everything feels dangerous. Um, but you also don't know, you know, haven't seen a lot of really bad crashes before. So everything, it takes a while to calibrate some of that. And so a lot of the, you know, fear uh, comes from your experience racing and knowing what to be scared of and what not to. So I'm still figuring that out. But I mean, I feel like a lot of the really, like you think about like Peter Sagan, it's like he's had a couple of bad crashes. like. I don't think he's thinking. It's like, I think just certain people, you're probably one of them. You just don't really think about it. No matter what you see or what you experience in your racing career, you're just kind of able to block that out versus people like me who yeah, I, I, I have like one bad crash and I'm like slow for four years after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think for me, the biggest thing is I just don't want to take a risk that would involve anyone else. You know, like if I'm, riding too close to a ditch and I fall in a ditch and I, you know, 
get dirt on me or something happens to my bike, like that's on me. But if I'm in the Peloton and I do something dangerous, that's a whole different story because it suddenly could involve other people. So anytime I'm riding, it's not like I have to be fearless, but I also have to think, you know, I can't do anything that if this goes wrong, I'm going to take down other people with me because that's also a reputation thing in the Peloton. Like no one wants to be known as that rider. So yeah, I mean, you have to be fearless in some ways and you also have to make sure that you're safe. So I think there's a difference between kind of what risks you take. There's, there's risks around how the, there's risks around your result, which is like, do I go off the front or not? And then there's risks around safety and some of that, and then sometimes they're combined. And so, yeah, I mean, fearlessness can be a good or bad thing depending on the situation. And usually it's a good thing at times and a bad thing at times. So. Do you think there's, is was there like anything from your professional career before being a cyclist that you think gives you like serves you in like the fearlessness department or just being able to like push through incredibly difficult work environments that is helping you now? Absolutely. I think, so I was a venture capitalist. And so we invested in early stage entrepreneurs who were founding companies and typically they were one or two employees, maybe five employees. And they were working brutal hours and they gave up everything, you know, high paycheck, high salary, everything to go start a company. And so I was surrounded by people who gave up everything to work super, super hard for a really low chance of success. And that's just the startup world. And so for me, I think my transition to biking was similar. It was like, I'm giving up a nice paying job in Cushy Silicon Valley to go make basically nothing as a pro cyclist. Um, And, you know, so, but it was like my passion. And so I think there was that element to it. Um, And then I think, you know, watching them, watching entrepreneurs work so hard and so grueling, you know, also my parents were entrepreneurs growing up when I was growing up and they worked really hard and I'm one of five kids and grew up in Alaska, which had brutal winters. And so I think growing up, I just always had um, a strong sense of resilience and pushing through things. You know, I was the fourth of five kids. Um, But I would say in terms of risk tolerance, so in venture capital, we invest in startups knowing that most startups fail. And so every single time we make an investment, we're making an expected value judgment, which is what is the risk here? What is the reward? And then how do we, you know, what is the risk reward ratio essentially? Like what is the expected value outcome of this investment? And then what is the opportunity cost for putting money in something a little more safe or a little more risky, but with higher reward? So if you invested, you know, in um, Pinterest or Skype, for example, early on, there was a super, super high likelihood of failure, but if it was successful, you can make a billion dollars. So, yeah. you know, that was all, that was how, I was trained professionally was to think in risk reward based bets. Everything was a bet. And so when I come into cycling, you know, it's inherent to me that you can't win or you can't be successful unless you're willing to take on risk. And it's not about minimizing risk. It's about maximizing the risk reward ratio and expected value. And so every single time I take a risk in a race, it's like, what is the expected value? outcome of this risk and sometimes during certain races you're willing to take higher risks than others and so yeah I mean for me it's not it's not about 
minimize risk at all costs or be fearless. It's about being very calculated about the risk that I'm taking, both from a safety, I I think safety, I'm a lot more cautious because I think the risk is a lot higher than the reward typically. But from a results standpoint, I'm much more willing to take risks because I know that, as my director once said, you can't win unless you're willing to lose. That's so interesting. I, the opportunity cost bit, I feel like a lot of pro cyclists overlook and even people like even decision makers in the sport where it's, they're just looking to minimize risk. Like I'll just go to the finish with the group. And then mm-hmm. it's like, I can't win in a bunch sprint, but then it's like, so your opportunity cost is, is massive. If you're not at taking, like, if you're not looking to attack at a certain point and then possibly win the race. So it's yep. interesting that that gives you a different perspective than a lot of people who have been cycling. I, in my opinion, it's like a little too entrenched. And then you ha- kind of have like the same ideas swirling around and around that aren't necessarily right, but they have just been around for a long time. And there's not a lot of like cross pollination with other industries or even sports. Mm-hmm. So it's fa- fascinating that you've like, you're such an outsider and then able to kind of look at it with such a clear view and make, make decisions on the fly like that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of investors that have turned to cycling, you know, I look at Evie Stevens, who is a former American pro, and she came from the investing world. And, you know, I, I think she also had a lot of successes because she was willing to take the right calculated risks. And I, I just think having that mindset, I mean, you talk about it, you know, um, in your writing, but I, I think being able to think about what is the risk here and is it worth taking? And, you know, if not now, what what's my next move and what's the opportunity cost of taking this move versus the next one and if i go after this attack but then i'm tired what ha- you know and so you have to run through all of these different scenarios and scenario analysis you know analyze each different scenario and then do it on the fly and it's a very very mentally taxing suddenly you know during a race and i yeah. think a lot of people who don't understand cycling they think of it as just a marathon on wheels you know it's just a fitness test you know go out there and go hard and they don't realize how mentally taxing cycling can be once you start to think about strategy and then on top of your own strategy you have you know all your teammates involved and they're part of your strategy and so you might take a risk on 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 a break not knowing if your teammates going to catch up or not you know um so it's it's yeah, it's a lot of risk-based assessments during a race and, and learning how to do those on the fly and just training that muscle. Yeah, that's, that, thank you for sharing. That's, that's really interesting. <laughs> uh, so are you, I, I should know this, this is bad prep. Are you going to the Olympics and the road race for the U.S.? I'm not, no, because I, I mean, I didn't race until October or September of 2020. And the long list was announced in 2019. So. <laughs> this, is so, this is so stupid. Oh my. I, I have like, yeah, I have a couple bones to pick with the U.S. cycling with the way they select those teams. That's, cra- that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I had never, let's put it this way. I had never raced a pro race when the long list was announced. Like if you were a track athlete or like a, or like a running athlete, you, you could, you know, show up two weeks before the Olympics and maybe a month before something like that, and then just win the trials and then you're in, but in cycling, it's, I, my opinion is then you're always, you're always lagging. Like your, your data is like years behind because they're making yeah. a long list too far out. 
I mean, I would love to race in the Olympics. It's, it's a dream of mine. Um, if I can't do it this year, hopefully 2024. So maybe we'll send the podcast to Jim Miller and let him yeah. decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, Jim, I, you want to let me in? <laughs> I'd love to go to Tokyo. <laughs> I'm going to write a, a letter to Jim. Um, <laughs> so do people in your personal life that aren't cycling related, like think you're crazy for leaving, leaving or just transitioning careers, leaving your old job? You know, I think in the beginning, I had a lot of skeptics because they didn't really understand cycling and it felt like a side hobby to them. And I don't think they realized kind of how quickly I was um, improving in the sport since when I started. And so for me, I saw kind of this progression and I had all these lofty, ambitious goals in cycling. And, you know, to the outside world, it was like, you have this great job, you're surrounded by great, intelligent people, you have a career, you know, and you love your colleagues and you love your work. So why would you leave? And I also had only cycled for, you know, maybe two years when I started talking about going professional. And so a lot of people around me just didn't think that was possible. So they, you know, wanted to encourage me to keep my job and, you know, cycle on the side. And yeah, I don't think they took me very seriously. And then once I started getting results in the fall, when I came to Europe, that's when people around me, I think, started seeing that cycling wasn't just a side hobby or a passion, but it was something that I really could be successful in and that I was really passionate about. And I also think they saw that even though I started late in my career, you know, started cycling, you know, at age 24, that when I set my mind to something, I do it. <laughs> and I think people who are closest to me know that, like when I set my mind to something, I get it done, you know, but um, I think this idea that you could become a professional athlete and do well in a sport that you started when you were 24, uh, just, I think a lot of people around me at the time didn't think that was possible. But then after I came to Europe, a lot of them saw what I saw, which was, this is something I'm passionate about and I'm willing to put in the work I need to be successful. So if I set my mind to it, I'll do it. And work will always be there when I get back. So if not now, then when? <laughs> did you did you know Evelyn Stevens before you joined TIPCO? Did you talk to her at all? This is kind of like an eerily similar um, career path to her. It's funny. So I've never actually spoken to her, but everyone has compared me, my, my journey to hers because she started cycling in New York city in the same club that I started cycling in, which is, um, CRCA, which is the New York, um, New York cycling community. And so everyone, when I started racing, when they started seeing me win a few races, they were like, Oh, you're going to be the next EV Stevens. And I was like, who's that? <laughs> and, um, and then they were like, you know, she's this amazing cyclist. She used to work in finance and then started cycling late in her career. And then, you know, went to the Olympics and raced in Europe. And, um, so even though I never knew her, I often find other people saying, Oh, you're, you're so similar. Your journey is so similar. So I've heard anecdotally about Evie Stevens. Hopefully I can meet her. Maybe I'll send her this podcast and tell her I want to meet her and chat on I the phone. She um, might live in the Bay Area. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken to her in-law, interest, one of her in brother-in-law, I think, who's founded a company. 
because I was working as an investor and he started a company. Um, but I've never met her. So yeah, I'll, I'll put her on my list of people to reach out to because it's long overdue. You know, I definitely should meet her because she's someone who I look up to. And I think learning from her experience would help me a lot with mine because we both come from, you know, similar backgrounds and started racing late and probably face a lot of similar challenges. It's this kind of this difficult, really difficult thing in women's cycling where if you're just like a talented male pro, you make a lot of money, like a lot of money. You actually don't even, a lot of, once you've established a certain career path, you really don't even have to get that good of results. But for women, it's like, you guys, you almost have to be, you're all like mini entrepreneurs within like an existing organization, like AKA the team. So it's like, you really, you have to be like an incredibly, like a multifaceted, like talented person, in my opinion, to be like equally successful to the men. Yeah. In fact, you know, because women tend to, women cyclists need to have side jobs in order to afford the cost of living. Most of the women on my team are incredibly smart. And I, I don't know what the case is in the men's peloton, but, you know, most of my teammates are very successful outside cycling and they could go back and be successful at whatever they were doing before. And they had to be because they had to have careers on the side in order to cycle. And a lot of men don't because just the way the system is set up, they make so much money from such a young age that they never have to establish themselves in a career. So, you know, I have teammates that are doctors, you know, concert pianists, um, you know, one was top of her class at uni. And so it just, it, everyone's so smart and um, so talented. And cycling is something that they do that they're also talented at. You know, it's not the only thing in their life. And so I actually feel pretty, you know, in some ways it's so frustrating to know that I'm putting in the same amount of work as a man and getting so much less pay and TV coverage and all these things. Um, and whenever I, get upset about that. I just think, you know, but maybe I wouldn't have these teammates who are so multi-talent, you know, multifaceted and, and so talented in other areas. So it's, um, yeah, and, you know, with every curse, there's a blessing or with every blessing, there's a curse. <laughs> yeah. I'm hesitant to even endorse that. Like, you know, yeah, you're better <laughs> off because you guys don't get paid anything, but you can cut this out. You can cut this part out of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think, you know, I, I think, um, the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, one of the perks of women's cycling in general is that the women tend to be very talented and smart outside cycling because they have to be. And I wouldn't, I would say that for every woman cyclist, you know, there's so many women who could be better at cycling if they were able to devote themselves hundred percent to it, but we just can't financially. And I think that's also the hardest part is that, you know, for every woman in the pro peloton, there's probably three others that could be in the pro peloton, um, but they can't make it work between their full-time job and cycling. And so they never make it up through the ranks. And I think that's one of the hard things is just the pipeline is so small um, because of the funding. And then also once you're here, you know, a lot of my teammates still hold side jobs. So I imagine that that ha- probably the parody suffers a bit where I'm just like the top couple writers, I assume make 
at least compared to the rest of the peloton like staggering amounts of money and then even the women's field yeah i don't think there's a rider i I mean i don't know i don't see the numbers but i think there's i don't think anyone makes above maybe 250 and i would say there's maybe the top five percent of the peloton that makes a hundred thousand dollars or more maybe that's crazy so you we, we don't and in men, you, you, <laughs> you know, you can get neo pros that make seven figures. Yeah, there's people in the men, we don't have to name names. There's people in the men's Peloton who are making like good seven figures that haven't really, I'm thinking of one person that just won their first world tour stage race of their career who makes like $5 million, close to $5 million a year. So yeah, it's totally insane. But I imagine, <clears throat> like, if you're in first, if you're the top woman making 250K, the 10th woman is making, let's say, 25K, that's got to, they just can't devote themselves to the sport in the same way the top few riders can. And it, no. it must make it more difficult to, like, foster parity where, you know, the, the, you know, like the Jasper Stuyven equivalent of the women's field isn't even a full time cyclist. So can't devote themselves to upset the favorites like he did at Milano San Remo. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, one thing that I'm so passionate about outside of riding is parody in the sport and it comes down to everything. I mean, this, the TV coverage, the number of races we're allowed to do, uh, sorry, the number of races that are hosted, um, you know, just coverage in the media, you know, like you go to a, any Instagram account that covers cycling and they rarely mention a woman's race. And if they do, it's four pictures of the men's race and then one picture of the woman's race. Um, you know, articles are not written about women's racing. And yet in many ways I hear from people that women's racing is more exciting to watch because it's still, uh, it's less predictable than a lot of the men's racing. And that's just because, um, you know, there's various reasons for that, but, um, it's a lot more dynamic and unpredictable from it is kind of what I hear from a lot of spectators. Um, so I think it's great that we're getting more coverage every year, more races every year, but there's still so long to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, ever since I left work, one of the ways I've been spending my time is just trying to do whatever I can to increase parity in the sport by sharing with friends back home. Um, kind of the ways that they can watch the live stream or ways that they can contribute to the sport or, you know, spread awareness about some of the inequities and things like that. So the Cyclist Alliance, I'm not sure if you're familiar with TCA. Yeah. They're yeah. a women's advocacy group and they're doing a lot as well to to cover some of the inequalities in the sport. You're talking to the problem. I I <laughs> I'm now sitting here realizing as you're saying that I never write about women's cycling. <laughs> yeah, I think if you I think if you were to take a woman's a woman's race and dissect it the way that you do a man's race. I mean, I, I think there would be a lot of people interested in reading it. Um, but I don't know. You'd have to try it and see. <laughs> you can start with the Tour de Flanders, maybe. <laughs> or pick a really interesting one. No, I have thought about this. Um, I have a couple, I- a couple ideas and then like a couple, I guess like this, I don't know if you know the cycling podcast. It's like a really, really successful men, like men-centric, uh, they cover men- men's cycling. And then they just release a women's one on the same feed, and that seems to work. So I guess I guess I could do something like that. Yeah, and I'm starting to see that now. A lot of 
companies, a lot of sponsors, a lot of talent agents, you know, everyone's starting to invest more in women cycling because they know that even if they might not get a return on investment this year, they will in the next few years because the sport is only growing. And so they want to be the first ones in it now because as soon as it starts to be lucrative, everyone's going to want to join. But if they're the first movers, then they'll have a following when everyone else is just trying to get in. So I don't know, maybe, maybe now's your chance to, to be, <laughs> become kind of the, the go-to person for dissecting women's races. All right. I, I might, I might do this. I think the thing is you'll get, you'll get a different, like a new set of followers. And I think that could also support your men's articles as well. And I think they could, I mean, the thing is, a, a cycling race is a cycling race and there might be differences between the men and women, but, you know, we can still learn a lot by reading about the men's race. And there's a lot of people who can learn by watching what happens in a women's race. And I don't know for every aspiring female athlete or just cyclist enthusiasts, like they also want to know what's going on in the women's race as well. So. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I also wanted to ask you what your, this, this also feeds it. This is like the same problem. Since there's no women's Tour de France, you go, you're going back to the U.S. in April. And then like, what are your goals for the summer, racing-wise? Yeah, I mean, um, there's not a lot going on in American racing in general, and especially this year because of COVID. So I'm planning to do a lot of gravel races and then maybe some local men's races. Um, but other than that, it'll be, you know, a large training block. And I think if I could race all season, there were races for us all season I would do it, but there's just not. So, um, yeah. And I'll uh, be doing a lot of gravel races. <laughs> so you, you don't have a plan. Is there a plan to come back to Europe for the fall? I, I think there's a, is there like another block of like, a, a like the, all the Italian races in the fall? I assume they have women's uh, partner events that run with them. Yes, there will be a late summer, fall schedule. I think one of the challenges for me and some of the Americans is that U.S. Nationals falls really close to the Giro um, uh, uh, d'Italia and La Course. And so we'll have to make, or our, I guess our coach will have to make a decision about which of those races we do. Um, and then in the fall, there's a lot of races here, but there's also some American races that got postponed to the fall. And since we have American sponsors and we're technically an American team, um, you know, we'll have to, we'll be doing a lot of the American races that do happen. And so there might be conflicts with the European schedule. So that's one of the challenges about being an American team that competes in Europe is that, you know, a lot of our sponsors and, 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 you know, they want American exposure. So we are going to be, you're going to be present and attend these American races, but at the same time, the most competitive races in the world are in Europe. And so we want to be here for those two. And so it's, it is challenging running a dual program. you mentioned gravel racing. Do you, I mean, it's yeah, American racing is in a weird, it's like before your time, but it was like at once there was like a healthier American racing ecosystem. And now it's like the biggest, the races that get the most publicity are, I'd say almost gravel events. Like I feel like the Belgian waffle ride gets more written about it than even like Cascade Classic, which used to like Lance Armstrong did Cascade the year before he won his Tour de France, yep. first for Tour de France. Do you have like a couple gravel races in mind that you're going to go to and crush everybody at? 
or try to crush everybody at? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I definitely have um, gravel races that I'd like to do. Um, you know, I think in May, there's a lot, there's, um, uh, there's, let's see, well, there's Unbound Gravel, which is happening this summer, which is used to be Dirty Kanza. Um, there might be a few grasshopper events. I'm going to do one grasshopper event when I get back in May, although it's less of a race and more of an event. <laughs> um, and then there's Pony Express Gravel 160 in Colorado. There's Wild Horse Gravel, Mad Gravel, um, Desert Gravel. There's, yeah, a bunch of big races um, that I haven't done before that I'm looking forward to doing because I think, you know, I, I think it's great training for endurance doing some of the gravel races. And it's also a great exposure for the team and it's a great community and it's a lot of fun. And I think it's a less stressful environment than road racing. So in some ways it'll be a good way to stay fit while competing in a less intense environment. Yeah. That speaks to how intense the European racing environment is. <laughs> You're saying, yeah, uh, yeah, 200 miles of dirt of gravel racing. Like that's, uh, I could just relax. You could have like a, a cappuccino <laughs> ride. <laughs> I was going to say the culture is very different in gravel too. I think people are there for the adventure. They're there for fun and they're there to get dirty. And, you know, it's always a big barbecue afterwards with beer. And I think road racing is a much more strict culture. You know, they care about your sock height. I think in gravel, people go out of their way to wear whatever socks they want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's everything's in flannel, you know, it's just a very different culture. Um, but I think gravel is a lot more relaxed and it could be a good break in the middle of the season before I come back to Europe again. And I assume world championships is probably a big, because that's in Belgium this year. So you'll be familiar with the, fairly familiar with the course. Is that a big uh, goal of yours? Yes, I guess we have to ping Jim Miller a second time. So. Are you not, a, you're um, not a lock for the team? This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't I mean, you have it. to remember, I didn't, I hadn't done a pro race until six and a half months ago. That's so a... no one, I had no reason to be on anyone's radar um, and no reason to have earned a spot for the team as of six and a half months ago. So um, I think this year is just, um, it's been a surprising year for myself, for my coach, for I think everyone to have someone who's never done a pro race and then to be getting some results, you know, at world tour races. Um, there were a lot of people who I think thought that my finish at our dash was a fluke and that some of my early races have been a fluke, but I think the more consistency I can show, hopefully people will see that I'm not going anywhere. And if anything, I'm only more determined to get better. So hopefully that will put me on some of the big, world championship races and Olympics at some point. So we'll see. This Fingers crossed. You've like broken the system. The system is not <laughs> set up for <laughs> how fast you've risen to the top. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not, I think cycling is a very traditional culture in a lot of ways. I mean, this part of the reason the women's Peloton is so slow progressing with races and salaries and all that, but just also the, thought process that goes into how people progress through the sport is still very traditional and i hope that we can be more open-minded because there might be a lot of amazing cyclists out there that just aren't given the opportunity to swim in the deep end when they're thrown in 
<laughs> Thank you for, for coming on. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And good luck this week getting ready for Flanders. I'll be watching closely on Sunday. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the race. All right. Thanks, Kristen. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we might try to do our first women's uh, breakdown next week after the Tour of Flanders. So we'll do a little test newsletter to see how that goes. But thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye.